everybody, and welcome to San Francisco Ballet's To The Point podcast. I'm Kate McKinney, the PR and Communications Manager here at San Francisco Ballet, and I'm your host for To The Point. If anyone's new, we're essentially a program note, a what-you-need-to-know-that-you-can-listen-to-while-making-dinner, walking in your neighborhood, or just in advance of putting up our 2021 digital season on a big screen in your home. Today, we'll be talking about George Balanchine's Jewels, a ballet in three parts, choreographed in 1967. This full-length evening is made up of three separate ballets, emeralds, rubies, and diamonds, which each evoke their own ideas and moods, but when taken as a whole, suggest that this work is as much a meditation on ballet style in France, the United States, and Russia as it is a choreographic interpretation of its eponymous gemstones. Today, we're going to talk a bit about this ballet's connection to choreographer George Balanchine's life and career, as well as its creation, and also talk through each of the three sections of the ballet and what to look for in each. By the end of the podcast, you should be more than ready to see San Francisco Ballet's interpretation of this iconic work. Sound good? Then let's get to the point. If you've listened to this podcast over the years, or even just this season, you likely already know something about who choreographer George Balanchine is. But let's do a quick recap anyway, as his biography does have a bearing on this ballet, even though it's technically a non-narrative work. Balanchine was born in St. Petersburg, Russia in 1904, right toward the end of the Great Imperial Period in ballet history. Indeed, on the day Balanchine was born, choreographer Marius Petipa, the quote-unquote father of classical ballet, looked out into the dark, snow-covered city and wrote in his diary, My work is reduced to ashes. The master choreographer had been displaced, his newest work canceled by theater director Vladimir Telyakovsky, his favorite repetitor Alexander Shuryev unceremoniously fired, Petipa himself relegated to smaller, less established theaters. The fall of the imperial ballet preceded the fall of the imperial empire. It's into this environment, post-imperial heights, pre-Soviet innovations, that Balanchine entered when he enrolled at the imperial ballet school. When Balanchine was 13, the Russian Revolution further upended life in Russia, and in 1924, when he was 20, he and a small group of dancers had the opportunity to leave the Soviet Union for what was supposed to be a short overseas tour. That tour instead lasted for the remainder of Balanchine's life. He would not return to the Soviet Union again until 44 years later, on tour with his company, the New York City Ballet. Instead, he made his way to Paris, joining Sergei Diaghilev's company, the Ballet Russe, in 1925. He'd spend the next eight years in Paris, London, and Monte Carlo, developing as a choreographer and developing an important and lifelong co collaboration with composer Igor Stravinsky. If Balanchine had had his way, he would have stayed in Paris. He wanted the directorship to the Paris Opera Ballet, but a badly timed bout with tuberculosis meant the job went to fellow Ballet Russe alum Serge Lifar. And it's good for all of us in the United States that it did, because he ended up going to New York instead at the urging of a young arts patron named Lincoln Kirstein. That collaboration resulted several years later in the company we now know of as New York City Ballet. So St. Petersburg, Paris, New York, Russia, France, the United States, these three places and their respective ballet cultures were some of the most important to Balanchine's career and aesthetic, and each appears in different ways in Jewels, which uses these gemstones as an analogy for ballet in each respective country. But what inspired this ballet? Well, the story goes that Balanchine was inspired by a visit to jeweler Van Cleef and Arpels, which maybe it was. 
It's also possible that the whole conceit was a marketing strategy. Jules was hyped from the outset, claimed as the world's first three-act plotless ballet. Is that a thing? We still say it, so I guess it appeals. It premiered amid a fanfare of publicity. Photo shoots at Van Cleef and Arpels, press photos of the leading ladies decked out in their jewels, the allure of a first. This ballet was a hit before it even hit the stage, and it was a box office phenomenon, too. But how did it really come to be? Well, as with all ballets, in the studio. Balanchine usually started with the music, but here he does seem to have begun with the concept, and then fit music he'd want to work with to the theme. The original vision had four parts, emeralds, sapphires, rubies, and diamonds. But he couldn't decide on music for sapphire, he considered Schoenberg, so it was dropped. Emeralds was made for ballerinas Mimi Paul and Violet Verdi, and was the most altered over the years. Rubies was made for Patricia Neary, Patricia McBride, and Edward Villela. Villela recalls that it was created in the State Theater's large main hall. He remembers Balanchine standing in the middle of the crowded rehearsal space, deaf to all the chatter and commotion, reading the score. Suddenly, he put down the score, clapped his hands, and said, Okay, let's work. For Villela, this ballet was personal. I felt Mr. B used everything he knew about me in this piece, he was to write in his memoir. It was as if he had tapped into my memory. Diamonds was made on Suzanne Farrell. She recalls him asking if she'd prefer to be a ruby or a diamond, but knowing that he'd already made up his mind that a diamond she would be. This ballet was choreographed in reverse. He started with the ending Polonaise movement, and then moved backwards to recreate the pas de deux in the opening sections. This working in reverse idea held true in the pas de deux as well. Farrell recalls that when they began to work on it, Balanchine couldn't decide how to begin, and so they began in the middle. The opening walk on the diagonal was added in only after the rest of the potages had been choreographed. So let's dive into each of these three linked ballets to see what they're each about and what to look for in each. The evening opens with emeralds. This ballet, seen this year in a brand new filmed capture, is a forest green meditation in long romantic style skirts and draws its audience into a kind of self-contained world. It's set to excerpts from Gabriel Fauré's Peleos et Melisande and Shylock. Perhaps best known for being Maurice Ravel's teacher, Fauré worked at the intersection of Romanticism and Impressionism, stylistic movements that Balanchine also references in his choreography for Emeralds. This ballet evokes the French style, its long skirts and mysterious atmosphere evoking the great French ballets of the Romantic period. Decorous, restrained, pristine, this ballet is the most inward-facing of the three, evoking a kind of dreamy underwater climate. This ballet is structured for two principal couples and a trio of soloists, but it's the principal women on whom the ballet hinges, in particular in two solos. Look for the bracelet solo, in which it should seem like the dancer's arm moves her, rather than that she is moving her arm. She's dancing with her arm, not making her arm dance. Notice, too, how in the other principal's solo, the speed of her feet contrasts with a kind of luxuriousness in the upper body, and the way that she seems to carve space out with her back and arms. And keep an eye out for the two pas de deux, one in which the ballerina enters at a stately walk with her partner, hands touching but never grasping, and one in which the ballerina's opening passion and confusion is slowly, subtly tamed by her partner. The second ballet in Jules is Rubies, set to Igor Stravinsky's Capriccio for Piano and Orchestra, written in 1929. 
This ballet is like Times Square at midnight. It's bright lights, rushing crowds, a touch of jazz, and just a hint of danger. A soloist woman, often, if not always, cast with a very tall dancer, and a petite couple lead a corps de ballet of 12 in a ballet that makes turned-in legs, jutting hips, and syncopated accents. This is the American section of the ballet, evoking the New York that Balanchine made his home. It feels particularly influenced by his time working in, on Broadway. These dancers seem as likely to appear in a chorus girl kick line at Radio City Music Hall as in a ballet's corps de ballet. The legs are turned and slightly bent. Think about a group of bridesmaids trying to look taller and thinner in a photo, and the hips move off the ballerina's central axis. Balanchine shapes this ballet around a couple, Valella and Patricia McBride, and a tall soloist, Patricia Neary. Everything in this piece should be bigger, faster, jazzier, sexier than emeralds, showing off a new kind of American dancer who's as big and bright as New York City itself, but never more so than for the soloist, who's big and brash and hyperbolic. She strides, she takes up space, she needs four men to partner her instead of just one in a stellar moment midway through the ballet, a moment quoted by Mark Morse in Sandpaper Ballet, which also appeared this season. The main couple have a central pas de deux that should catch you by surprise every time, with a kind of humor and playful sensuality mixed together. It's loose and then crisp, precarious, but self-assured. Villela says this ballet was influenced by, quote, Degas, Astaire, the world of jazz and show dancing, the brashness and confidence of Broadway nightclubs. There was a tango, a cakewalk, and a chase straight out of Queens. See if you can spot these influences as you watch. Finally, the evening ends with diamonds, which transports us back to Balanchine's youth, or maybe even before, back to the height of the imperial era. This ballet is not just Balanchine's homage to the grand style of Marius Petipa, but it's almost like Balanchine becomes Petipa, using his sense of scale and amplitude. The central pas de deux made for Balanchine muse Suzanne Farrell almost seems like what Odette from Swan Lake might have danced were she from the 20th century rather than the 19th. Diamonds is set to Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 3 in D major. It's only fitting that Balanchine would choose Tchaikovsky for this evocation of Imperial Russia, as Petipa and Tchaikovsky together created some of the world's most famous ballets, Sleeping Beauty, Swan Lake, and Nutcracker. Balanchine would make his own Nutcracker, but never made full-length versions of Swan Lake or Sleeping Beauty, instead using Tchaikovsky's music in new and different ways. Diamonds is made of a waltz for the corps de ballet, a pas de deux, a scherzo, and a final polonaise. It's the pas de deux that's really at the heart of diamonds. Notice how there's an undercurrent of desire between the couple, but how the ballerina is a bit distant, almost cold, unpossessable. In the opening, they walk towards each other as if magnetized, but then when they reach for each other, she looks down and away, avoiding his gaze. Farrell said that this diagonal walk made her feel like, quote, an oracle, prophesizing what was to come and whence it came, an image that feels fitting for this leading woman. Her independence is asserted throughout as she gestures not to him, but to the diagonal, to the edge of the space. At the end, she moves away from him for a pirouette that begins unsupported until he comes in to assist on the second turn. And then as she slows and stills, the man kneels and she lets him kiss her hand. It's more a moment of worship than of love, of devotion to a brilliant, inaccessible diamond. Taken independently, these ballets are, pun very much intended, little jewels, 
full of invention and innovation, refracting light and evoking subtle changes in mood. Taken together, they are a masterpiece, showing the very dimensions of a master craftsman at work, reflecting on each moment of his career. And so that brings us to the end of Jewels. I hope you'll tune in to see the newly recorded Emeralds that was filmed back in January. Thank you for tuning in to To The Point and meet me right back here for previews of the rest of the season's performances. If you haven't checked out our other podcasts, including recordings of our popular Meet the Artist interviews and points of view lectures, you should go do that. You can find them on our website or in any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts. Hit subscribe and you'll get our episodes downloaded as soon as they're posted. And in addition, please do leave us a rating and write a review in the Apple Store and reach out on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at SFLA. We'd love to hear from you and your ratings and reviews help us reach new and bigger audiences. Thanks for listening and see you soon on a screen near you.